1: Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn.
0: Hello, and welcome to the conversation on Colloquium. Today, I have Zane Jaffer with me. Zane, how are you? I'm doing great. Excited to be on the show. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So, started a company at 14, eventually got bought by a large institutional group. I'm sure there was a lot of twists and turns along the way. Looking back on it, do you think you know, was it totally insane to do something like that at 14? Did you have any concept of what you're getting into? But with the benefit of hindsight, I'd love to learn about that story a little bit before we get into some of the other things you're working on.
1: Yeah, people always think success is an overnight phenomena, especially when you read about how a sudden company, you know, IPO'd and had a massive outcome. Absolutely not the case. In my case, it was failure after failure. Uh, and, you know, a lot, of, uh, a lot of it, I think, came from the fact that My parents are immigrants. They they came from East Africa. Idi Amin was this dictator in Uganda. So they they came to the UK with pretty much no money. And I grew up in an environment that was rough. And so to stay out of trouble, I discovered the computer. And I learned how to code, learned how to design things. And also realized, oh, on these online freelancer platforms, you can hire folks in India. I had the... um, good luck that my voice broke early so I sounded older than I looked (laughs) and I just picked up the yellow pages and I started calling up local companies convincing them that they need a website and that was my first stint at you know trying to start a company Um, and eventually um, I realized why am I building websites for local companies I should put this knowledge to use and build something myself and that's where I went from being you know a service agent or consultant to being a founder and I started a bunch of, uh, you know, internet startups. I was making money through ads. I would reinvest everything I had back into each project. And eventually, you know, I'd keep losing everything and finding ways to beg, borrow. Ultimately, in the end, after lots and lots of hard work and, you know, numerous different attempts of at startups later, I had a, a big exit. And I got to say, luck is a big part of it too.
0: You know, there's a lot that I want to unpack in that two minute kind of statement you made. What is it about the immigrant experience that lends itself to being an entrepreneur? I mean, I see this fact pattern over and over again. My business partner is Indian, moved here when he was eleven. In in your why why does that just keep popping up in these stories, these narratives we hear? I was reading about Peter Thiel the other day, uh, you know, who's also immigrated here from Europe, Africa.
1: Yeah, and I'm sure these types of stories are the ones the media loves, right? So I want to caveat it with that. I think, you know, anyone can be an entrepreneur. But I think if I look at my experience, it's probably not what you'd expect to hear. Yes, of course, there's growing up with very little money, seeing my dad work his uh, rear end off underneath cars. He was a mechanic, literally working illegally, right? Taking money under the table. Just so that, you know, we could be able to pay the mortgage. So you start to realize what is this relationship with money? Money seems to be very important. We're always getting these letters that our home is going to be repossessed if we don't pay the mortgage and we're behind on payments. The thing that I think might surprise your listeners is I looked at my parents and I thought, that's not what I wanna do. And because my parents are immigrants, they didn't really understand how um, the Western world works. And you know, I'd moved to the UK, right? I'll give you an example. My, my parents didn't like me being on the computer and they would literally um, take the power plug out and say, no more computer. And I'd be like, why? I'm, I'm learning how to code. I'm learning how to design. So I think when you look at the things your parents do and how 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 risk averse they are, right? You start to feel like, I don't want to do that. I've got to be different. It's not like you've got role models around you. I mean, my parents are role models. My dad was the hardest worker ever, right? Um, and You know, I owe everything to him, but I didn't want to make the same mistakes they made. And I definitely wanted to take a risk. And I felt like I owe it to them because they're sacrificing everything just to give me a chance. So you have this hunger and you also have around you not many positive role models. So you have to find your own way.
0: And and I want to revisit something you talked about, risk, because when we listen to these stories and and when I interact with my investors who are first-generation wealth creators, I, I feel as if oftentimes we only look at the third chapter of their journey, right? You've got chapter one, the call to adventure, chapter two, the abyss, chapter three, the redemption, like the hero's journey. The messy middle is typically where the magic happens, right? But initially, it's that huge, intense, asymmetric risk profile that people run that allows them to have outsized gains. Is that something that you've reflected on both in your own journey and now as an investor with other people's ideas and and startups?
1: You know, you would think that actually um, there's this tendency to want to book your gains quickly because you came from nothing you're playing with your initial set of investment, right? You're, you're, you know, you're the roulette wheel, right? It's time to cash out. You've got to know when to walk away. So I think at the beginning, um, once you start to get some early quick wins, you perhaps sell too soon, sell too early. Uh, in my case, I certainly feel that was, you know, I mean, the company sold for 780 million, but it should have been worth tens of billions if, if I'd you know, stayed on. But when you come from nothing, money has a tremendous impact. Um, there's a certain level of wealth you need till you feel comfortable and you can breathe. And when you get that, you get very emotional and you you don't want to screw it up because you might have to go back to the beginning. So I sort of have a different perspective there. I think immigrants, particularly, once they've come from nothing, you know, having that safety net is pretty important because you don't want to just blow away money. I also remember there was an occasion where we we had um, some acquisition offers at my company and... I, I remember someone asking me, you know, you should you should probably take it or maybe you shouldn't. And I said, look, the way I have to think about this is once I get that offer, someone's given me a bunch of money. I'm now giving it to all my shareholders, all my employees, and I'm seeing them be able to go buy houses and, you know, give money to their parents and enjoy themselves. And now I'm, by rejecting an offer, I'm taking all of that back and saying, no, trust me. And I did reject a couple of offers, too. Uh, but. You feel tremendous fiscal responsibility. Is what what I think when you come from an environment like that. It's not like it's not like you have a, a trust fund, right? And you have daddy's connections to help you, because then you can go swing for the fences and take risk. In fact, in, in many occasions, I felt like I didn't have a choice but to start a company. I couldn't sell the company for a long time, so I had to keep it sustainable and profitable. I couldn't raise venture funding initially for whatever reason, so. I had to just hustle and figure out a way to make it work. Sometimes it's the fact that you just don't have a choice and you know you have to do what you have to do. Can you imagine if Facebook had sold for a for, for billion dollars, for example? They couldn't. So then at the end of that, they ended up building something absolutely amazing and big. I sort of feel like that's part of what, what happened. Second time around though, for sure, I would not sell early at all. And I think you, you lose the biggest gains being too quick to sell. But it's easier said than done, right? Especially if you've got emotions attached.
0: Is that hunger need a condition precedent to being a successful entrepreneur the first time around in your opinion, or is that a fact pattern that you like to see when you make initial investments for people that like this is gonna be make or break for them personally?
1: Yeah, so through my family office and also through a venture fund that I I, I founded um, which focuses on PropTech, It's very important to find people that have motivation and hunger. Um, Sometimes when people don't have a chip on their shoulder um, and they're just doing it until they find something else or they're starting a company because they realize, oh, I did a quick calculation and I can, you know, earn more in year two and year three by raising more money and paying myself a salary with upside than working somewhere else. You've got to avoid situations like that. You've got to find people who are very hungry, who are maniacally focused, have a vision, and often don't have a backup. For them, this is everything it's it's make or break. This isn't like they've had a you know a string of wins before they need this they, this is their life purpose they were born to do this
0: and that goes against the grain somewhat to other people that I've talked to who you know they like to see they like to see past failures before they invest with an entrepreneur right they like oh, that's to... what I mean
1: that's what I mean of
0: course so you like to see that scar tissue that that people built up before you put your own capital to work with them
1: yes um absolutely i think if you're investing later stage it might not be as important because then you're making more of a decision on the traction and financials but if you're going earlier stage and we're talking about investing in startups here then to reach product market fit you've got to be an insane operator who just has to do everything you can to to get your company to that that requires a level of hunger and motivation that you really, it's an intuitive feeling when you talk to someone, whether they have it or not. So that's
0: specifically something you look for in the pitch and when you're doing the diligence on on an entrepreneur. The most important thing, yes. Is that desire, that hunger.
1: Yeah, I'll tell you, there's startups I've almost passed on and I've said, you know what? I don't want to bet against this founder. This founder is so crazy. They're so hungry. I don't want to bet against them. So you know what? I back them. I back them. And I'll probably back them the next time around, too, even if this fails, because at some point in in the VC ecosystem, you're betting on the founder and their ability to disrupt an industry.
0: Yeah, I was, you know, to go back, I was reading this article about Peter Thiel. This is a new book coming out about him, about how he made his first investment with Elon after Elon took him on a car ride, crashed his car and, (laughs) and told him they didn't have car insurance, you know, that this was going to be like a total loss for him. And the next day, I think he put you know four million to work with him in whatever startup it was at the time. So, I think there there does need to be that concept of almost a lack of reality in terms of their mindsets in order to achieve things that other people think aren't possible. Right? I mean that that's part of the of the formula here.
1: Yep, yeah, absolutely, hundred percent agree.
0: So, so, looking back on it, you know, I think. It's great to hear what worked, right? But for, for your own journey, and now that you work with and and I assume mentor other entrepreneurs, what are the lessons that you give to them? More about, hey, don't step in this pothole. Or, These are the mistakes that I see before that i made myself. What are, what are some of the big takeaways that you've learned from your own experience?
1: I mean, there's a ton, right? I think I'll just focus on a few things that come to mind. There's a lot of um, hype, and sensationalism around uh, raising funding. And some companies just aren't built to raise funding. Some companies are not appropriate to take VC money. So for many people, when they see their competitors raise VC funding or they see kind of bubble type behavior in the market, their ego is affected and they tie the funding they get sort of to their identity. People will introduce themselves often as, oh, I'm a VC backed founder. Our startup has raised X million. And it's a lot more sexy to say that than we're making 100 million a year in revenue. Uh, it's cooler to say we just raised 10 million from you know, a bunch of VCs. So don't get caught up in that, in that mess would be my advice to founders. I was always insecure when I would see, oh, damn, look, this competitor just raised more money than we did. In fact, the one competitor who overtook us and is now a $30 billion public company we were the same size when we started out, AppLovin. The founder bootstrapped the company pretty much entirely and you know only raised four million versus our 25. Bet the next round he raised was like hundreds of millions, way later, right? There's something to be said about building sustainably, raising VC funding when you need it, otherwise building a profitable company and realizing that your customers are the least dilutive or actually the best source of capital you can get. That's probably the big lesson I think I would share. There's many more, but that's the big one.
0: Fascinating because the analog for me, when I speak to aspiring real estate sponsors or GPs who want to get into my business, I tell them don't fall into this trap of what I call the square footage game or the AUM game, just focused on being able to go to your country club or your social network and say, hey, I've got this amount of square footage under management, or we just have this AUM. At the end of the day, you need to really focus on, do you have a good GP business? Is your flat? Is your platform scalable um, and repeatable and, and efficient? Um, that should be really your focus because there's always going to be some other group that's much larger than you. And, and that's not a game that you want to play and not really a game that you want to win, in my opinion.
1: Yeah. I mean, if we start talking about some of the things going on in the industry right now with real estate GPs, and I'm, I'm a real estate GP too, right? Um it, people are losing their uh, discipline and patience right now, and are too eager to deploy capital, often for the wrong incentives—to collect more fees and just to deploy, right—and giving in to to the lack of discipline. But I think it comes down to what you said: build the foundation, build something that's you know a, a true business where you have something that is defensible. Otherwise, Blackstone is going to outcompete you every single time, but cheaper access to capital than you do. They've got a better reputation. I mean, hell, you know, they they can afford to come in and deliver a a 6 to 8% IRR for their investors. It's not going to pencil for you, no matter how much spreadsheet magic you want to try changing those interest rate assumptions or cap rate exit assumptions or rent growth assumptions, right? You you just can't. So you've got to have, you've got to focus on your core. And I think in in the real estate world, to me, the parallel with startups is I think um, GPs should find a niche. And don't try to uh, be too, you know, broad. Otherwise, a larger firm with a better platform will outperform you. And there's a time to, um, there's a time to sort of diversify your assets and ge- geographical focus, um, and size of deal you do. But you've got to start with the basics. And the best, you know, I- I'm a, I'm an LP in a bunch of real estate funds. Right, the funds that do really well are the ones that started with a niche, a focus. And built things the hard way up. It could be they were a property manager to start with, or they had, you know, they crashed the car literally, like Elon did, right? Where uh, they're the ones having to fix all the mess their construction team made. It's the ones who 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 have an operational role and then move into the investment role do really well, I think.
0: Yeah, I, I oftentimes will reinforce to my team: we are a tech-enabled marketing platform that offers real estate as a product or a service to a select population of investors. We are not real estate guides. Because being a real estate guy and doing deals is not a sustainable business model. And I have no interest in being in that business. And so, you know, that's reinforcing to hear you say the same thing. But let's get, let's use that as a segue to get into, you know, obviously you're very active both on the prop tech side and just a traditional real estate GP, LP investments. What is the state of play right now? (laughs) You alluded to it earlier, you know, money is cheap, debt is cheap cost of capital is low, cap rates continue to decompress. And where do you see this all going and where are you finding value right now?
1: You know, it's really hard when COVID hit. Uh, I thought there'd be blood on the streets and we, we did buy a couple of assets, but we um, I don't think anyone expected this runaway inflation and money being printed and everyone eager to chase yield of some sort. I think the opportunities are... Um, really down to the different asset classes. Each asset class has a different risk reward ratio right now. Some people are thinking that, you know, um, commercial office, for example, it's the best time to buy commercial office or commercial retail because it's a contrarian view. Uh, There's a lot of safety now in multifamily and you're seeing a lot of those traditional commercial um, real estate dollars you know, hospitality groups and retail groups and office groups putting more and more of their money into multifamily and chasing multifamily. It's akin to like in the venture capital world, you've got a lot of private equity folks playing in VC, right, flooding the startup ecosystem. In the same way, I think you're starting to see that too. Um, So asset by asset, I I would say, just to sort of give an opinion here, multifamily I think is one of the safest assets out there. I think industrial is absolutely crushing it. And the cap rates speak to why. Of course, it depends on the type of industrial. I think hospitality has a place, but you can't argue with the power that platforms like Airbnb have. But there's going to be subsegments of uh, hospitality. If you break hospitality down, I think um, the corporate hospitality—you know—the the hospitality that re- that re- results in. Corporate travelers, that's suffering a lot and I don't know where that's going to go. I think it's in distress and I don't think it's a good investment because I can't fight the trends. But I think more of the vacation and, and the um, you know uh, work from home movement too is helping a different type of hospitality for sure. I think single family homes is the hottest asset class out there that's emerging. I think it's going to be um, very much like multifamily and I'm starting to see a huge issues institutionalization of that um you know there's other niche asset classes too there's ghost kitchens there's strip malls there's you you know different types of uh, co-living or co co uh, co-working type of spaces that have promise as well so look to answer your question it really is dependent on the different asset classes
0: so let's transition into prop tech we've had a number of entrepreneurs and, and folks on the show that our folks in this world. Obviously, we all know the story that real estate is an old line industry with a bunch of old white guys, for the most part, who are running these things that are scared of tech. But the disintermediation is happening, right? It's starting to be embraced. I know my own firm, I've been doing this 11 years. The amount of of tech-enabled software that we use on a daily basis has gone up tenfold in the last three to five years across the whole spectrum, be it marketing, sales, asset management, leasing, et cetera. How do you think about investing into the space and and what are you most excited about today in the prop tech world?
1: Yeah, and just to speak of some of my background in prop tech before I answer that, having started, having been an entrepreneur and also buying real estate, I just couldn't help but start investing in prop tech startups, right? I felt like I had an edge there. And so I run a prop tech VC fund, We've made about 10 investments and we've got you know a bunch more we're going to be making. I think PropTech for me is one of the best possible areas of investment in the VC landscape. I think fintech is exploding and it's done really well. But PropTech to me feels like where marketing technology was. My last startup was built when apps were taking off. And when I looked at starting a company, there were like four different areas I could have started a company in. Each one of these four areas resulted in like the top three to five companies being unicorns. And I happened to just land in one of those areas. When I looked at PropTech, there were like 50 areas. It's just such a big market size um, measured in the trillions of dollars, right? So across the board, um, there's a wave of innovation happening. I think now is the right time. I think uh, now is the time for prop tech. I think the doors are going to close, actually. I'm a little bit pessimistic. I feel like the companies being funded today are the companies that are going to do really well. But three, five years from now, I think it's going to be kind of late. There'll be more consolidation happening in the industry. And it comes down to this, and these are your words, okay, not mine, a bunch of old white guys, right, who control the power right now. Well, there's a generational shift happening as the heirs to those businesses or empires come in, who's, you know, the younger son or the younger daughter comes in and realizes we need to implement tech. You know, we can't can't survive based on what our parents built. If you look at any real estate fund, okay, and you ask them, how are you different? You're going to hear the same BS over and over again. Here's what you'll hear, okay? Well, we have, you know, we have vendor relationships. There's a contractor my dad knows and we've worked with him for decades and we trust him. Oh, we've got some LPs, and we can just send that an email and we can get people funding us. Right? Oh, I've got access to banks. All of this. None of this is none of this is sustainable. All of this is being disrupted by tech. You can go raise money from the crowd immediately. There's online platforms where you can get far better access to capital. And you know, vendor relationships. I mean, (laughs) you know, (laughs) sure, you can have preferred vendors, but they're gonna it's not it's not as transparent. So I think. Um, those who don't adopt tech are going to are going to really suffer. Those who adopt tech uh, will be able to improve their net operating income, improve their efficiencies, and squeeze out more NOI. And I think it's that realization from the new breed of real estate GPs that is driving this wave of adoption of prop tech solutions, whether that's software to help you buy properties more effectively, whether it's property management tech-enabled software, whether it's you know, underwriting due diligence. There's a whole wave happening right now. And the wave after PropTech, I think, is construction tech, which is sort of much slower, but that's also a big wave that will be around for at least a decade. Whereas PropTech, I would say it's it's a zero to three, maybe five-year window to make investments now. And that's my opinion, you
0: know. Yeah, there's a company based here in Nashville called Built. Yeah. Con- construction tech company just hit unicorn status on their most latest, latest round. Uh, believe it's the only unicorn in Tennessee right now. Um, I mean, if you're seeing it play out in real time. That what you're saying, it's incredible because that has been an old line kind of bank run business for for many many years. When you think about investing both as a into more traditional real estate vehicles and prop tech, has your mindset shifted now that you consider yourself
1: family office? Oh my God, totally, totally. I mean, how to unpack that question. Maybe I'll I'll unpack it from this perspective. Um, Being a founder myself and now transitioning from the role of operator to capital allocator has been a massive learning curve. And often the assumption is, once you make a bunch of money, you should go set up a family office. And I'll tell you, there are points and times where that doesn't make sense. Sometimes it's better to park your money as an LP with a good real estate GP, I did that. You know, I, I invested in a bunch of funds. I did construction loans. I bought single family residential properties. I bought um self-storage facilities, I did JV partnerships where I was the largest LP uh, in multifamily. And um when all is and I and I also own and operated my own multifamily too. And when all is said and done, and I've exhausted myself, I just couldn't understand. How is it that some of these funds I invested in are kicking my butt? I'm here. I don't have to pay a management fee, an asset management fee or an acquisition fee. I don't have to share my carry with someone. Yet my return on capital is being dwarfed by some of these funds I've invested in as an LP. So there are times when running a family office means there's things you want to do actively and there's things you want to do passively. And I started off actively buying and investing in real estate. And I realized it's sometimes better to join a platform and invest as an LP instead. And also, as a family office, um, it's quite schizophrenic. You have to wear different hats. And you've got to think about the flavor of capital that you're dealing with. A dollar going into VC is very different than a dollar going into private equity, which is very different than a dollar going into a, or a stock. I've, I've probably got 60 to 80 different fund managers I've worked with now. Uh, I'm working with actively and parked money with. And it's too much. right? It's It's overwhelming. But I think the lesson I've learned, and I'll give you one quick anecdote here as I talk about this, right? If you're investing in a startup versus you're investing in a real estate project, you have to wear completely different hats. And if you don't, you're going to make so many mistakes. When you're dealing with a founder, and this goes back to our earlier conversation, you're really investing in the person. Any financial projection they give you, you can throw away, honestly. It's useless. You sure as hell do not want to be investing in the person when you're buying real estate because it's about the projections, it's about what the property can deliver for you. Just the fact that you're used to dealing with founders and you're looking at the personality is a different mindset when you're dealing with a different conversation in the same day and you're looking at a real estate project. You don't want to be dealing with the charisma and the personality of the uh, real estate sponsor here. You want to focus on the fundamentals. it's it's been a challenge and a big learning experience. And I think that's a a word of caution to someone who thinks it's very easy to replicate and compete with some good GPs. You've got to build competence if you're going to do it.
0: So this is a question that I ask everybody comes on the show that's in this space. What is your definition of a family office?
1: You know, the definition of a family office is whatever. Your definition. My my definition would be, it's whatever makes you... um, It gets you up at night, it gives you a buzz, right? So for me, there's passive investments I've made, and I don't really know if you'd even call that a family office anymore. Parking money with a bunch of different LPs is one thing. But what gets me up at night uh, and gets me excited is my family office investing in things I can't get exposure to anywhere else. I can't go give my money to a wealth manager. And I I do work with wealth managers too. You know, can give your money to a UBS or a Morgan Stanley or JP Morgan. My family office, for me, gets me up at night and it allows me to invest in things that are fun and exciting. And it's much more than just financial returns. In fact, if you're looking just for financial returns, running your own family office might not be the best way. You might be better off just parking it with a bunch of good GPs and giving it to a wealth manager. For me, investing directly in startups is fun. Investing directly in real estate projects that I can't get exposure to generally is very fun. Investing in emerging markets like Africa, for example. Those are things that I might not be able to get investing in crypto stuff. Those are things that your traditional wealth manager or family office structure might not get you as a passive investor. So for me, family office investment is a way for me to just get up in the morning, have some fun and put capital in places that, you know, is creative and fun. And,
0: And how much of that fun for you is the ability to give back and act as an advisor and a resource to these entrepreneurs beyond just the capital, Right. The, the cliche of strategic capital. Is that the case with you?
1: Yeah, 100%. I've I realized um, if it's a broad theme, give it to an expert. If it's an area you're passionate about, you want to learn about, then go actively invest directly. Go find the right uh, small micro funds or projects directly you can invest in. And it's it's stuff that has to get you up uh, and you're excited about and, and you know you feel like you can make an impact in.
0: And how do you, especially during COVID, go about sourcing these type of opportunities? And how do you think about networking—not purely just deal flow and the traditional funnel, but actually building relationships in this space to get access, which I think is one of the the, the key challenges that family office face today. To your point, information is kind of everywhere, and you know everyone's got access everyone has the information they need or they they could input but it's getting access to those niche boutique kind of off the run deals that i think is one of the more challenging things for families and high net worth individuals today
1: it is in danger here you're speaking to a marketing tech founder right so i've obviously uh, put a lot of energy into building a, a brand and social media i've got a newsletter right a few things that i'm doing that i think could be applicable to anyone I, I write um, I write investment memos for any, any deals I'm going to invest in. Let's just take startups. And I find that publishing a lighter version of that investment memo goes really far. Because if you want to reach the deal directly, or you want people to bring you deals, you've got to be known as someone who does deals. So I'll make an investment, and then I'll write an investment memo. And it's really just a blog that people can link to. And you wouldn't believe what it does. You share it on LinkedIn. Suddenly, all the competitors start reading it. Other VCs start reading it. The founder shares it with their network. And once you start investing consistently, and if you're going to do something, you should do it consistently, right? If you're investing in startups, you better invest in like 20 minimum. Don't invest in two or three. That's not how you do it. Otherwise, go give it to a VC fund. And I'll I'll even do memos on VC funds I invest in too. That's worked really well for me. That's a little hack I found. And that results in a lot of deal flow. And I think anyone can do that. People often hold back. There's too much of this proprietary protective feeling and the sense of confidentiality. Founders love it when you write about the reason you invested in them. So I think that's the lesson that people can take. And I've also done it for some real estate deals I've done. I've released a memo on LinkedIn a couple of times on some projects I've bought. And my LinkedIn box is suddenly flooded with people who are seeking capital. Got to be careful here, you know, you, you might be flooded with more messages than you can handle. Um, on the marketing tech side, I'll just share one tip. There's automated software you can use to send messages to people and I'll often send messages that are simply a few lines. Hey, I'm a former founder, run a family office, would just love to connect and maybe send you updates. It's like a 90% response rate for acceptance to that. And before you know it, if you do that consistently, you've got a distribution list of thousands of people. Tens of thousands of people actually. It's not as hard as people make it sound. You just have to um you just have to get on with it and try and experiment.
0: Yeah, I mean that's how we connected. I, I kept bumping <laughs> up against I bumped up against your name. I'm super active on LinkedIn. I kept seeing you. Right. The the blog, the videos, and I just cold messaged you. We had a quick intro call and and now you're here. And actually, after I already booked you, your third party uh Podcast person reached out to me and said, "Hey, I think you'd be a good fit for for Zane." I was like, "I think he's on on the books for this week." So, I agree with you. I think people always talk about, especially for some reason, GP sponsors in the real estate world, like the power of no and being really regimented with your day. Which I'm not saying don't do that, but I think putting yourself out there and just saying yes to things that's always proved to be really powerful for me in, in a way that I've met super interesting people and had compelling conversations just like this one, just kind of creating that funnel and, and putting out content. And, and to your point, opening up, you know, there, there's no proprietary deal flow here. There's no proprietary systems any longer. I mean, it's all on YouTube. So like, what are you, what are you trying to
1: hide? That's right. And I think real estate GPs suck at marketing overall. I, I, um, I joined a private equity fund where I'm a GP now and I put a lot of my money and I was like, wow, you guys have achieved great returns with so little marketing. Let's go set up a newsletter. Let's go start posting about things and it's amazing. And there's a tiny fraction of the world of GPs on Twitter, right? And if you're a GP, things come down to two things. I could say maybe three, okay? But two things that you cannot outsource. The third, you can outsource, right? It's raising capital finding deals. The thing you can outsource is management and operations. You can hire a third party manager or, or a GC to, to, you know, develop or whatever. Right. But you're in the business to do two things, raise money and find deals. And often these things are out of balance. So you've got to go put yourself out there. You've got to let people know you're doing deals and it can't be one-on-one and it's not scalable to do one-to-one. You've got to do one-to-many. Go add your closest contacts, Put them on an email newsletter list, and then you're fundraising without fundraising, you're deal sourcing without deal sourcing, right? It just becomes a process that your firm, you talked about early in this segment, um, the best GPs are businesses in the building processes. This is part of processes, which is marketing. I think anyone can do it. And I I view marketing as critical to finding deals and raising funding. I don't raise funding as much. I I do with the PE fund and VC fund that I'm, you know, GP in. But for my family office, this is my money. I might co-invest, but I'm not raising money necessarily. But marketing is key to finding deals at least.
0: Anyone can do it and should do it. You're you're taking my spiel and repeating it verbatim because when I talk to GP and sponsors who are getting into the business, I tell them the same thing, that you cannot outsource the the capital raising here. Or if somebody young comes to me and says, hey, how do I get a job in commercial real estate? I tell them the same thing. I said, listen, at the end of the day, GP sponsors, it's all about raising capital and and finding deals. Everything else can be outsourced to a third party and I can beat them up in pricing (laughs) a lot. And I can fire people and hire them all day. So to your point, don't be the world's best kept secret. Um, and, and and the flip side of it is, if you do take marketing seriously, if you do take social media and leveraging technology in order to help with your capital raising and deal flow, if you just take it seriously, you're already a top decile sponsor because <laughs> most are, are are terrible, just absolute garbage at it. So I completely agree with everything that you're saying. <laughs>
1: They are and if you're if you're if you're investing in your underwriting for a 10-year hold how come you're not doing the same and reinvesting your management fees into infrastructure that's going to be relevant 10 years from now why is it when you buy a property it's a 10-year forecast and you're going to do these value-add components and you know you're looking at the market trends well hello why don't you look at your core business if you're raising money and you're doing deals Build some marketing infrastructure, get a good website, get good marketing materials, get a good deck, get a newsletter going, get social media being out there, go on podcasts, go write memos, go talk about things. This is why a world of GPs are going to go under. This is why already people are getting FOMO, they're bidding too much, because they're, they're losing out on deals. Off-market deals, I mean, that that just is very difficult to get these days, and it's, it's more important than ever that you reach one to many and you scale your relationships through technology and marketing
0: yeah, I mean, uh, i I completely agree. And it's interesting because this this world of institutional investors, it seems like it's almost shrinking. like it's the same hundred names that just keep getting bigger and bigger. I saw, you know, Blackstone now runs over ten trillion dollars. Like that world is becoming, it's so fee sensitive that it's becoming smaller because you can't compete there unless you have massive scale. At the same time, this mass affluent, you know, fractionalization of real asset ownership is just burgeoning. In America, 13.5 million accredited investor households less than three percent of exposure to to private deals or alternatives or private equity, whatever you want to call it. But like nobody wants to spend time there. Like that's where you should be focusing all your energy and efforts, in my opinion, because it's 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 a blue ocean. It's completely inefficient. And to your point, if you just put yourself out there and start. Leveraging social media, taking marketing seriously, you can gain a huge following in fairly short order because these people don't get a lot of attention from others.
1: Yeah, agreed. And if you, I'd say one step forward from that advice would be, um, you don't. There's, too, there's, you can be transparent and you can talk numbers, but I appreciate some states and non-disclosure states where you know you don't want to put the price you paid for the asset, but you can still put things out there. The other approach, and I've seen this work well, is actually, believe it's or not, be anonymous. Be anonymous, but with no filter, right? Don't be worried um, about who you're going to offend on social media. Talk about, you know, anonymized your experiences with brokers, your experiences with lenders, your experiences with managers, your experiences with tenants. Um, people will start to follow you. And then from that, you can qualify and build personal relationships. So I've seen two approaches work to social media. And if, if, you're, uh, if you want to do... Well, one the other way, you could be anonymous, and that could work really well.
0: You know, this has been terrific. I want to be mindful of your time. We're bumping up on forty-five minutes, Great. but there is one thing that you talk about on on video and, and blogs that I, I do want to get into. Both from your own experience as an entrepreneur, and now that you invest with other entrepreneurs, how do you how do you factor in luck, both in starting your business? But also investing into other people's businesses.
1: Luck's 50%. But to be a little bit more um, to, to be a little bit more interesting than that, I believe that companies have a capability to capitalize on luck. That means good luck and bad luck. If you build infrastructure and processes, so when something bad happens, you can quickly set up a war room and you can evaluate the threat and you can pivot. You've now improved your capability to respond to bad luck events. Same with good luck. When luck comes knocking on your door, you open that thing and you take as much as you can and you capitalize on it, right? So I think um, when it comes to luck in startups or luck in anyone, right? It's your capability to um, pounce on luck. So if it's 50% luck, there's some people that are lucky consistently and all the time. Those people aren't lucky anymore. They're well-prepared. They know how to pivot out of situations and take advantage of things. Then there's everyone else where luck really is 50%. And, you know, Get unlucky, you get lucky. There was a, um, a great book. I think it's called Great by Choice. And in that book, they did a study of Fortune 500 companies and outperformers, and they found that each company had the same number of good luck and bad luck events. It's how they capitalized on luck that separated the 10x performers versus the market comps or you know the low performers. So, and you know, just add to that as a founder or as an investor you really start to understand how a founder deals with luck after you've invested, which is why it's important to build relationships with founders before you invest, see how they deal with COVID, see how they deal with their investment round taking off and see how they pivot. Cause that's what it's about. The founders who can pivot smartly, not, not 360 degree pivots, but you know, smartly pivot. Those are the ones you can bet on who are going to be lucky consistently or more consistently than others.
0: You've alluded to this, a little bit here in terms of some of the media that you digest. But are there any podcasts, books, newsletters, sources of information that that you digest on a daily, weekly basis that maybe wouldn't be you know top of mind to others, none of the, like obviously the Wall Street Journal, et cetera. But I'm always interested kind of where you find information or compelling stories
1: yeah um i listen to podcasts a lot and i have my own podcast too and i think talking to industry experts is is a way to discover hidden gems and things like that i actually read a lot of the lp reports i get so you're
0: the the only you're the only one based on my click-through rates who actually reads the memos that we put out there
1: well yeah because think about it You're, you're a gp right you're putting thought into your thesis This isn't like a quick little article that you published online or a journalist wrote, right? Or some poor research was done on. You've got a view on the industry, you've got a fiduciary duty to your LPs. You've bought something, you're putting your intelligent view on the market, you've done the research for me. So when I read a memo or when I'm an LP in a fund and I read what they give me, and I'm assuming a lot of your uh, listeners, some of them are our LPs and funds, right? Read those damn LP memos that come out and the quarterly reports. That's sort of the advantage of investing in certain asset classes. See what these large companies are thinking. If you invested in, sorry, any companies thinking, but if you invested in large institutions, they produce like 50 page quarterly reports. Read those, listen to company reports too if you're on the VC side, especially um, the uh, quarterly earning reports or S1s from uh, public companies. Uh, That's what I would say. Um, Now to zoom out a little bit, the methodology of how you consume information I find is you divide it into a few different areas. For me, it's quick bursts of information, which is Twitter. I follow a couple of people and I get lots of good curated, you know, uh, nuggets of information, especially people that don't have many followers and they're trying to grow their followers. They're going to produce a lot of goldmine information. Then there's your general trade publications, like a tech crunch or whatever. And then there's proprietary sources, like, you know, you've invested as an LP in a fund and you can get all of that. And then there's podcasts, which people just don't listen to enough where there's just gold information out there.
0: Well, along those lines, we're going to include everything in the show notes um, in terms of your content information. You do produce incredible content. That's how I got connected with you and, and sent you a cold note and here we are today. Um, but what is the best way for people to, to access some of the, the video blogs and other content that you're putting together yourself?
1: Yeah, so uh, let's just choose one. I focus a lot on prop tech. Right, where I have people talk about real estate and I have people talk about startups. So proptechvc.com is is a, a project that I've got now, which showcases a lot of my prop tech related content. That's proptechvc.com. And then um, my family office website, where I transparently have all the funds or most of the funds I've invested in. I put my deal memos on there. Um, that's zane Z-A-I-N dash or hyphen ventures.com. So zain-ventures.com. Um, and my Twitter handle is twitter.com forward slash Zayn Jaffa. So, um, yeah, that's, that's one way to sort of follow what I'm doing.
0: Well, Zayn, seriously, thank you so much. I was pumped for this interview because you do put out some really cool stuff and, um, I really, really appreciate your candor, especially since not many people who are now on the buy side have been on the sell side like you have. And I always think that that perspective is really powerful. So keep producing this great stuff and, you know, thank you for taking the time to share your story with us today.
1: Thank you for providing everyone with a great platform, too.
0: Thanks, Sam. Take care.
1: Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn.